you're listening to Irish Radio Canada and uh, we are delighted to be at the Fines Flying Museum and I'm here chatting with Mary. Mary, thanks a million. Um, the museum here, a little bit of the background. When did the idea come around to set this museum up and when did it open? It all started with an idea by Margaret O'Shaughnessy. Right. She actually just comes from behind Fines and she had this great idea. Look, this was an airport for six years. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody would actually build something here to show it? Right. And in 1989, she opened the museum here just with a small one-roomed museum. Okay. And Maureen O'Hara opened that museum for us as okay. well. Right. And from there, you see what we have now. It's grown. It's in the original terminal building. They had one room first of all, and now they have taken over the whole building and we have our maritime section as well. Right. Why not just have the aviation side? Why not have the maritime right. side as right. well and cover the whole thing here in Foynes? And now, with, uh, so you're coming on 30 years, what, uh, 30 years 30 last years. month. So, yes, yeah, our 30th birthday last month. So Thank you. How many visitors are you seeing, would you say, coming through here now a year? Thousands and thousands. I couldn't actually tell you how many now, but I will find out afterwards oh, yeah. so how many. So it's a, so it's a, it's a regular staff on many. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Tour groups, yeah. people actually just passing by. Yeah. It's amazing the amount of people that come in here. They come from all over the world. Yeah. Australia, New yeah. Zealand, yeah. South Africa, Germany, French, Spanish, lots of, and of course Americans. And, They're and always course, here as well. Tremendous Canadian connection. There is that. Yes, I'm Canadian. That to be the last stop. That's correct. Yes, yeah, yeah. that is correct. Um, yes, and the first stop when you were going across. Yeah, that's right. absolutely. That's right. Yeah, um, and they all know what we're talking about when we talk about it because Gander yes. is where Botwood was. Right. Well, Botwood, it was called Botwood back then, but now it's called Gander. And of course, and people know um, that. Gander is the great airport during um, the 9-11 when they, they hosted That's off. correct. That's and correct when they all went there. They That's went correct. There. Yes. Um, so then, points, as would have been the case back when, for the six years this was, the airport would have been a buzzing, vibrant place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, while it's still a port, it's struggling like many Irish towns. And just well, the town maybe itself, the town is fairly small and things like that, but this port is really on the way up. Right. It is you know, they're dredging it again. It's a deep water port. It can accommodate uh, Panamax-sized ships, which are the largest ships, uh, quite large ships you can get here. And the work and the business in the port between import and export is getting bigger every day. Right. So then from um, the museum's perspective again, are you open all year round? No. Okay. We're closed for the winter months. So you're open from when? We're when? open from March until October, november -ish. And is that seven days a week? Or seven days a week. Days a week, seven days a week, yes. And um, what hours are you normally open? We're normally open from half nine, nine thirty, until five, outside of the summer hours. Okay. And during the summer, June, July, and August, we're open from nine thirty until six p.m. And um, you have a website out there? We do. And we do. Just do a, a search for Foynes Flying Museum. Foynes Flying Boat Museum, or even if you uh, just go for the Boeing three one four, the flying boat, that you will get into the actual thing. And uh, this morning, I know you had a group from CIE Tours, but if you can accommodate tours, so if there was a, a family group or anything that were coming and they wanted a tour, just ring on ahead. Ring ahead and just book it, and as long as you have more than 10 people in your group, and, uh, we can take bookings for next year.
you can now. Right. You know, right. and we have lots of regular tours that come through here, like CIE. Yeah. Uh, they come through here very, very regularly. It's part of the the um, Wild Atlantic Way yes. on the N69, and it's one of the stops here as well. And they're either going on to the Cliffs of Moher and Limerick City, or else they're going back to Kerry to do the Dingle, the Ring of Kerry, and that kind of thing. Okay. So it is the main, it's on the main road. And uh, here you have a nice little coffee shop as well. Yes, we call this the, the Irish Coffee Centre, where we will actually do an Irish coffee demonstration here for yep. people. And also, if we have a group, and the, you know, because we have a little restaurant as well, but if we have an extra group, we will actually cater for them here okay. so that they won't clog up the restaurant, you know, if they want to. And food. a gift shop. And a gift shop as well. <laughs> All indeed. museums have a gift shop. Indeed. indeed. Yeah. Well, Mary, it's been a real pleasure meeting you, and it's uh, been a fascinating tour that you provide, and it certainly makes the whole, brings it to life. Um, and the, the whole history of flying and how Ireland was involved did a fantastic job. Thank you very much indeed. Thank yeah. you. You're all very welcome to Foynes. My name is Mary and I'll be your tour guide today. Now this tour starts with a 17 minute movie about aviation here in this part of the world and then we go on into the museum proper. Now, out the back, we have a replica Boeing 314. It's the only replica in the world. And you can board this plane and see how they flew back then. There were 12 Boeing 314s built first day. None of them remain. They were all either crashed or scrapped. So we're very lucky to have this replica here. At the end of your tour, then, we're going to show you how to make the perfect Irish coffee. You all know Irish coffee was invented here, yes? yes? Yes. And you know the story of how it was invented here, yes? Yes. yes. No. Who said no? <gasps> Who said no? You didn't hear it. Okay, so right. I'll explain to you so. Your tour guides and everything are very bad that they don't explain these things to you. <laughs> way back way back in nineteen forty three, when this was an airport, flying boats flew in and out of here quite regularly. But flying boats had a little bit of a flaw. If there was bad weather on the Atlantic, they would not be able to have enough fuel to go through the bad weather, so sometimes the pilot would have to make the decision to turn around and come back in here to Foynes again. That's exactly what happened in November 1943. The pilot, there was a big storm out in the Atlantic, so he contacted the control tower here and asked them to look after the passengers because they were coming back in again. As, and the, the chef at the time here was Joe Sheridan. And he decided, as he was making the teas and the coffees, he would put a shot of Powers whiskey into the coffee. And one of the passengers said to him then, Is this Brazilian coffee, Joe? And Joe said, No, this is Irish coffee. So that's how it all started here in Foynes. When this airport closed, Joe went on to Shannon Airport. And he, uh, he worked there in the bar and introduced the recipe there as well. And after a number of years, he got itchy feet, and he decided he was going to travel. And he set off for San Francisco. He went to the Buena Vista Cafe on Fisherman's Wharf, you might have heard of it. Joe went walking there, and he introduced the recipe there as well. And from there, it went worldwide. But it all started here first day in Foynes. So now you have the proper story. You know exactly where it was invented. So don't let anybody tell you it was invented in San Francisco. It was invented in Shannon. It was not. It was invented here in Foynes, okay? So we're going to show you how to make the perfect Irish coffee at the very end. Now, I'm 
going to put on the film and I'll be back in to look after you after that, okay? So, enjoy it. Did you enjoy the film? Yes, it's very interesting and it's all original film and it's the only one we have. So it's nice to see it. Now, in the very beginning to cross the Atlantic, the only way to do so was by ship. And that could take anything from two to three weeks. So you can imagine the race that was on to see who was going to cross the Atlantic by some other means of transport. And in 1919, that is 100 years ago this year, Three flying boats set off here from Newfoundland and they followed this course and one landed in Plymouth, England. One of them turned back and one of them sank, but there was no loss of life. So the Atlantic had been crossed for the first time by an NC-4 flying boat and it was flown by Lieutenant Commander Reed of the United States Navy. It had taken him 53 hours... 58 minutes spread over 23 days to do this. You see all those marks here in the water? They were actually ships that were anchored at specific points along the route that the flying boat had to travel. And if it needed to, it could land on the water by any one of these ships, repair, refuel, whatever, and then take off again. So that was the first time the Atlantic was crossed by air. I know the airships were there in the 1920s and the 1930s, but after the disaster of the Hindenburg, they were pulled from service anyhow, so they didn't really count. And the first time the Atlantic was crossed by flying was by Alcock and Brown, and in one hop this was now, and they landed in a bog in Galway. And the first time it was flown solo was, of course, by Charles Lindbergh. Now, has anybody heard of Wrong Way Corrigan? <laughs> he was you've heard that saying I'm sure you've heard that yep okay yep he was actually dying to get across the Atlantic he'd love to actually fly the Atlantic but they wouldn't they kept turning him down because his equipment was not up to scratch eventually he put in a return flight plan to Los Angeles and 27 hours later he landed in Dublin, Ireland <laughs> he reckoned his compass was turned back to front and that's what happened so immediately he got life membership of the Chicago Liars Club so that's the wrong way Corrigan for you now, there we go now, uh, these planes that actually crossed the Atlantic none of them took passengers so now there had to be a proving flight to make sure that it was viable to get a passenger flight across the Atlantic and in 1937 America and Britain were in the running for this. And both countries came to the agreement that one plane would set off here from Botwood in Newfoundland and one would set off from Foynes at the same time. And then they crossed mid-Atlantic. So they both had the privilege of crossing the Atlantic for the first time. One was flown by Captain Harold Gray and one was flown by Captain Wilcoxon. And we have the map down here that they used. This is the original map that they used here. No, 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 this one up here. That map there, they actually signed it. So you can see their signatures there. That was in 1937. We also have here a maritime sextant. 
There was no such thing as radar or satellite or anything back then. It was just a case of the navigator would climb up to a dome on top of the plane and he would shoot the sun, moon and stars with the sextant to figure out where they were in the world. This was a maritime sextant that he used and here he was using it in the air. So to make sure that he was able to read it properly, he had to put in a false horizon into this sextant to make sure that it worked properly. They were very intelligent back then. Now, also, uh, they would actually, to figure out where they were, the crosswinds and everything like that underneath them, he would drop a smoke balloon onto the water. These flying boats were not pressurized, so he could open the window, drop down the smoke balloon, close the window again, and walk off the findings that he had from that. A little bit different to today. We also have some of more of their equipment here as well, some more uh, sextants and things like that, na navigating things that they had. Now, I mentioned Harold Gray here, and over at this side, we have a glass case dedicated to him. Here he is being greeted in, uh, by De Valera in Foynes after his historic flight. As well as being commander of the first proving flight in 1937, he was also commander of the first mail flight in 1939. He was given this lovely silver tray in honour of his achievement, and this is his scrapbook actually. Anything to do with aviation or to do with maritime and that, he would take those pages out of the paper and he made a quite a substantial scrapbook for himself. This is a Pan Am uniform. It's not Harold Gray's, but it's, it was donated to the museum here, but it's exactly the type of uniform he would have worn anyhow. And we have here his logbook. And if you look closely at that page, you can see Foynes and Botwood are mentioned on that page. Now, has anybody heard of Charles Blair? Has, there, has anybody heard of Maureen O'Hara? Yes. Charles Blair was married to Maureen O'Hara. And here is a picture of them here on the wall. Now, he actually flew flying boats out in and out of points here. And in 1945, he flew the last scheduled flying boat out of Foynes. And two days later, he flew the first scheduled land plane into Shannon Airport. So he had a last and a first. He was actually given the Harmon Award by President Truman as well. He died in 1978 in an aviation accident. And he's buried in Arlington Cemetery with full military honours. And Maureen is buried beside him because that was her wish. This is the terminal building where all these passengers came through when this was an airport. And uh, the likes of Gracie Fields, Humphrey Bogart, John F. Kennedy before he became president, Ernest Hemingway, all those people came through this exact building we're standing in. And in our archives, we have a comprehensive list of all those passengers too. Now we'll go on into the radio room, which is just here next door. That's it. All come in because there's loads of room. Perfect. All the items we have on display here are the real thing, and they're on loan from the, uh, uh, um, the Aviation Authority. Yeah, the Irish Aviation Authority. That's it. Right. Communication back then, as you can imagine, was just as important as it is today. But they didn't have the same means of communication. Here in Foynes, they had a Marconi transmitter. And this transmitted messages on long wave, medium wave, and short wave. They also had 
Morse code. Here we have a hand-drawn weather map drawn back in 1939 without the aid of a satellite because there were no satellites in the sky. It looks like a satellite image, but it's not. It's hand-drawn. We also have the old black phone, and this is a teletype machine. It would be the equivalent of sending a text message today. <laughs> it was during the war the Foynes was an airport, and Ireland was neutral during the war. But at the same time, there were plenty of rules that had to be obeyed. And here in Foynes, the BOAC had a notice for its passengers. They couldn't say where they were going, who they were going with, what time they were going. It was all just hushed you didn't say anything. Behind you here we have the receiver that would receive messages and to the left of it to the left of it we have the old Remington typewriter. I'm sure people can remember those. Come on in here come on in here and you can have a little look at everything alright? There we are. Now do you see the black and white picture on the wall just above us? That's a picture of the weather station that was here in Foynes. It looks like a rabbit house or a chicken coop or that but it, it doesn't look very adequate but the information from that weather station plus all the weather stations along the west coast of Ireland were used in the D-Day landings because the weather coming in from the Atlantic hit the west coast of Ireland first. So there we go. To the right of it we have a white placard here and it's a dissertation on the use of alcohol of all things. And if you look at the second paragraph it says it should be noted that a bar is not a man's natural habitat, etc., etc. We go on into the airlines room now. We'll leave that one out. Okay. okay, in we go here to the airlines room. We'll have a little look. We're going to gather here. That's it. You can see points here from the air. Yes, the landing strip was the water. That's it. All scoot in. There's loads of room for you. Yeah, come up here. You're like myself. You're small. You're small but beautiful. Now, Foynes came about because Shannon was only being built at the time to accept land planes. And it had no facility to accept the flying boats, which was the alternative they were going to use until Shannon was ready. Shannon is surrounded by swamp and marsh, so it was no good. They needed somewhere that had a working port also had a long runway for the planes to land and take off on hence the River Shannon also having public transport like the railway station to take them on wherever else they wanted to go in Ireland and an oil terminal for fueling the ships as well as the flying boats. So, Foynes ticked all the boxes for the powers that be, and that's why Foynes was picked as a transatlantic air, air, airport for six years until Shannon was open. This is the terminal building you're actually standing in right now. So that'll give you an idea of how close to the port we are here, just across the road actually. So the flying boat would come in to land and anchor out on the river, and a launch would go out and bring the passengers and crew from the plane onto the pier and they'd walk up and across the road and into this building here. You can imagine it was such a novelty to see all these planes landing and taking off that people used to make a day out of it to come down here to see this. And when it was said that when Gracie Fields came onto the pier, she sang a song for all these people to come down to see the flying boat. I like to think that the song she sang was When Irish Eyes Were Smiling. Why not? Now, flying boats were actually notorious for being very late or very early as well because they really depended on the weather on the Atlantic and of course the jet stream as well. So sometimes these planes would actually come in earlier than expected. 
And here in Foynes, these workers on the pier would actually be at home in their beds, not expecting the plane to come in early. So the pilot from the plane would actually ring the control tower here and say, look, we're going to be early, get those workers up. Now the people in the terminal building did not have any phones to call these workers. So what they used to do was they had got a local man with his horse and a bugle. <laughs> and he rode up and down the main street here in Foynes, blowing his bugle to wake up these workers. He also woke every dog and child in the place. <laughs> that was besides the point. He got the workers up and they came down to the pier to look after the passengers. He was actually called the Horseman Crier. And our director here, Margaret O'Shaughnessy, her grandfather was one of those horsemen criers. So it's nice to have a little connection like that with foins. So that's foins from the air. At this side we have our treasures area. And here on the back wall we have a picture of a Boeing 314. If you look closely it's actually a vintage jigsaw from back then. And also there are two pieces missing in that jigsaw as well. We also have a picture of the Mayo Composite. Do you remember the little plane on top of the big plane? Yes. Which plane went on to America? Oh. Well done, you were awake. <laughs> That's correct. The Maya, the large plane, would take off with the Mercury, the little plane, on top, and they would go right out to the mouth of the estuary. There they would disengage, and the Mercury would go on to the States, and the Maya would come back in here to Foynes. It was only a way of seeing how fast they could get across the Atlantic using as little fuel as possible. And it never took passengers, it only ever took mail. And you know the space shuttle today? It's based on the same principle as that as well. And from the original Mayo Composite, down here we have the original steering wheel from that Mayo Composite. It's called a yoke. Yes, uh, I, I don't know whether it is because of the, the way it is, the shape of it or what. But you know, push that yoke, hold that yoke, that kind of thing. So there we go, that's what a yoke is now. We also have a continental cake here in this circular cake tin. This cake has flown around the world two or three times but was never opened. It's over 70 years old now and it's still as fresh as ever, take my word for it. <laughs> I think it helps matters that it's a type of fruitcake as well, you know, so alcohol will preserve anything. So there you go. We have here the outfits that they wore back then. It was the ground hostess who looked after the passengers here in Foynes. You can see very elegant, just like air hostesses today. And we have the pilots and the captain's outfit as well. During the winter, they wore a black cap and during the summer, they they wore a white cap. We have the story of one of the Boeing 314s here, the Bermuda Sky Queen. It was the only plane that had to land on the North Atlantic. It took off here from Foynes in 1947. Now flying boats could accommodate 35 passengers and 11 crew. This plane had 69 passengers on board. So it had not taken into account the weight versus the fuel consumption. And this plane ran out of fuel on the North Atlantic, about 800 miles away from Botwood. It was very lucky it landed by a Coast Guard ship. Now, the, wa the waves on the Atlantic at the time were 37 feet high. So, to try and get the people from the plane onto the Coast Guard ship, it took them a lot of time. It actually took them 24 hours to get everybody off the plane on small rafts and small boats and things like that. And 
everybody was taken off the plane and they were all saved, put on the Coast Guard ship and taken on to Boston. The poor old plane, the Bermuda Sky Queen, it was so badly damaged by the waves that it was sunk. So it's sitting at the bottom of the ocean now beside the Titanic, or near the Titanic, I suppose, on the Atlantic Ocean. So there you go. That was the story of the Bermuda Sky Queen. Down here, we have the remains of a Sunderland flying boat, which is a smaller flying boat than the Boeing 314. This plane crashed back in Kerry in 1943. The pilot thought he was out over the water in very thick fog. No radar, of course. And when the fog cleared, he found that he had actually drifted inland. And Mount Brandon, which is a tall mountain in Kerry, was right in front of him. He tried to avoid it, but a wingtip hit off the mountain and he crashed onto the mountain. He and nine others died that day, but the rest of the people on board survived. Years later, a helicopter brought this part of the wreckage to us here in Foynes. It's nice to have part of a real, real flying boat, if you like, because our flying boat out the back is only a replica. It has never flown. But this Sunderland, in its entirety, has flown passengers across Europe and further beyond. Now we'll go down here to our little Pan Am glass case. All passengers when they boarded the Boeing 314, they were all given a little overnight bag. And in that bag there were slipper socks and toiletries for them. So, also, when uh, these passengers, it took between 15 and 20 hours to get to New York from Foynes, all the seats on board the Boeing 314 turned into bunk beds. So when these passengers woke in the morning after their night flight, their shoes were cleaned and polished by the steward on board. Yeah, absolutely. We have a Pan Am blanket here that was donated to the museum. But this picture here, I think, is the nicest thing. All the Boeing 314s, the interior wall was covered in this fabric. So that's a piece of fabric from an original Boeing 314. I'll give you, I'll just explain the cutaway here of the Boeing 314. It accommodated 35 passengers and 11 crew. These passengers were treated to a seven-course meal prepared from scratch. Served with cut glass crystal, sterling silverware and white linen tablecloths. Absolutely. Uh, there was a separate dining room for these passengers and for everybody to have their meals, it accommodated 14 only. So what they, for everybody to have their meals, the steward would go around and ask who'd like to dine, let's say, at 6 o'clock. Who'd like to dine at 7.30? Who'd like to dine at 9? And then everybody was accommodated in the dining room for their meals. Uh, also at the very back we have the, uh, kind of a private suite we actually call it the honeymoon suite if somebody wanted a little bit more privacy and you can also go upstairs to the cockpit of the plane and see how the crew flew the plane I'm sure you'd like to know how much a ticket cost mm -hmm. a one way ticket from Foynes to New York back then was roughly about $395 one way in today's money it was well over $9,000 in today's money one way so that will give you an idea of who actually flew in these flying boats the, absolutely the royalty movie stars celebrities that kind of thing so there you go you'll see this out the back now shortly in here we have the waiting room where passengers and crew would wait for the next flight bus train whatever because the only way to get to America by flying back then was through Foynes and the only way back was through Foynes as well Foynes was only a small village with about 350 people in total population here. 
and everybody thought goodness me this village is going to really get very very big we need more shops we need more of everything but when this airport closed in 1945 all the workers went on to Shannon Airport and different places to get work so we have here at the moment about 500 people in total population but we still have a very busy port here and we also have this museum to show what happened back then our replica is out the back here now and it was built by a set designer and his name is Bill Fallover. He lives in County Wicklow and he brought it here by road uh, in sections and it was assembled here on site in 2006. So we're going to go out now to have a little look at it and you can also take some pictures and that as well. We also have the kids room in there, sorry, the kids room is in there. There are some simulators in there and any kids among you, you're more than welcome to try them afterwards. I'm not letting you in there now because if I do I'll never get you out. But it's just in there, alright? Now if it's all gathered there, I'll just give you a little bit of information about the plane. You can't go on board yet. Come back here. Come back here. Here. Here you can take a picture. <laughs> There's always somebody. Now, there we go. Dad probably, yes. Yes. <laughs> Now, you can all just gather here, isn't it? And at the same time, the length of this plane plus the length of a Sunderland plane would actually fit into the length of a Boeing 747 from today. So that will give you an idea of length and size. That's it all come out now? It's a replica, yeah. There are no planes, there are none of these left. Okay. The original Boeing 314 weighed 42 tons. It flew at 183 miles an hour. How fast? Yeah, how fast does the plane fly today? Yeah, that's why it took them so long to get across the Atlantic, okay? 183 miles an hour and at a height of between 8 and 10,000 feet because it wasn't pressurized. You see the grey building just across the road? Behind that is the River Shannon where all these planes landed and took off from. So when it came in to land on the water, it would come to a standstill and a member of the crew would come da up, out, down to this hatch here on the nose of the plane, open the hatch and drop down the anchor. Once a flying boat, once they were secured on the water, then they went out with the launch and brought the passengers and crew in from the plane. You see, it had four engines. That's just one of them there because the building is in the way. They had four engines, and each of those engines were 1,600 horsepower. And they were built by Pratt and Whitney. Now, there was a lot of, uh, you know, looking after these planes, just like there is of planes today. And back then, when the flying boat was empty, a member of the ground crew would go up to the roof of the plane the, on the outside, and you see the little, pla uh, little flaps there on the rudder on the plane and that, and there were some on the wings as well. He would actually have to pour warm oil onto those flaps to make sure that they walked every time they were needed because flying boats landed and took off on salt water which is quite corrosive. Thank God they don't have to do it with today's planes but back then it was one of the main jobs they had to do. Now the first room we're going to go into is the dining room and then 
all along the bottom of the plane we have all the accommodation for the passengers we have the men's powder room the ladies powder room the little kitchen and the honeymoon suite and then you can go upstairs to the cockpit of the plane as well and see how the crew flew the plane because you're a group I'd like about eight of you to go up to the cockpit of the plane at the one time it's because the stairs are quite winding and narrow and I just want to make sure that everybody is safe alright so just take your time and be patient so here we go. Now you can go on board. Come on, come on, come on. Rain run on two engines or three engines? Four. It has to run on four? Four engines. One engine went down. They tried their best to keep it going, and the engineer would actually come down and see if he could fix the engine that had stopped. There was a tunnel through the wings. There was a tunnel through the wings out to each of the engines and see if he could make it work. Now. They on the no, nope. no, it was still up in the air while it was going. Now, if you go down there, go up to the cockpit of the plane, all right? So, this stuff was anchored, right? Oh, yes, it had to be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what Yes, absolutely. Seven and eight, okay? Go up to the cockpit, it's there on the right. Going up to the cockpit yourself there. You go back here and look at the honeymoon suite. That's it. Go back and see the honeymoon suite. I have eight people going up to the cockpit. We also have the ladies' powder room back there. We have one bunk bed made up to show you. All seats turned into bunk beds. This is the dining room where they had their meals. And we have all the accommodation here at each side. The men's room is there on the right. The little kitchen is there on the left. And people are going up there to the cockpit of the plane. Just take your time on the stairs. So this is the dining room. Honeymoon suite there to the back. Oh my. All the accommodation. All the seats turned into bunk beds. You would just pull a lever in the real thing and turn into a bunk bed for you. Go to the honeymoon suite first. Yes, you go to the honeymoon suite. So to pass the time, these passengers would actually read books or play cards or just look out the window at the ships below underwater. Great. You can sit in the seats as well. This is the dining room where they had their meals. It accommodated 14 people. So it was lovely. You know, they just were able to just have that many. What is the bag looking thing that you see from looking in the front of the plane? It's round. Oh, it's kind of a little hammocky thing, yeah? yeah. So the crew, some of the crew would actually rest there as well. There was a double crew on board. That's in the nose of the plane. Yes. Yeah, uh, there was hammocks like there. A, yeah. It's like a hammock. It's, it's like a hammock, like yes. Yes, yeah, they're one of those. Yes, they exactly. The front end? They would actually go in the front, yeah. Yes. They would actually go in there. All right. <laughs> okay. So this is the uh, dining room. Honeymoon suite to the back. All the accommodation, uh, all the seats turned into bunk beds. There are some people going up to the cockpit. They'll be coming down again in a moment. You can sit in the seats as well to try them out. Now, okay, we're all going to go in now and have the Irish coffee demonstration for you, all right? So we come through here. Absolutely. Okay, we all go through here now. And go to your left. Take a picture of the uniform, because I flew in 58 with Air Canada, well, with Trans Canada. And that's almost identical to my uniform, except my fabric was... Wonderful, fantastic. And, and then the coat beside it obviously was for the male, but we wore the navy Burberry just like that. Oh, wow. There yeah. you go. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
Can you all see me? I am standing up, you know. Okay, here we go. I'm going to show you how to make the perfect Irish coffee, and to do that, I need two volunteers. One, wait a minute, one, one from the Morris family, and one from the CIE group, and you have to be over 18 years of age. Who are you with? CIE, okay, Morris family? Morris? He's going to go. Okay. So both of you come around here to me. <laughs> so come around here to me. Come on in here. Come on in here. Come on in here. In at this side. Thank you. Right. Okay. And what's your names, please? Bob. Bob and John. John. Okay. You're very welcome to find Bob and John. Tell me, have you made an Irish coffee before? No. Have you drank an Irish coffee before? Yes. Oh, thank God, I thought you were a pioneer there for a moment. <laughs> right, Bob and John, first of all, we're going to go through the ingredients for the perfect Irish coffee, first of all. So we have brown sugar. Most important ingredient, of course, Powers whiskey. It's a good Irish whiskey, take my word for it. We also have whipping cream. This is just ordinary single cream that has been lightly whipped until it still pours. Nothing added to it or anything like that. And we have Bewley's Coffee, a very popular coffee here in Ireland. Right, to start off with, because Irish coffee is a hot drink, the first thing we're going to do is heat the glass. So we'll get the glass. Bob and John, get your glass as well. And we'll put a spoon into the glass. That's to stop the glass from cracking. So now I'll pour the water in. And you do the same, Bob. Very. Well done, Bob. You're doing great. Pass it on to John. There we are. Oi, you're supposed to do it. <laughs> well done, John. That's absolutely brilliant. Okay, we'll put it down there if you don't mind. Now stir that water around. And you can feel how hot the glass is. Wonderful. Pour all that water away. We don't want anything like water in our Irish coffee. <laughs> Perfect. Wonderful. Put the spoon back in the glass again, please, Bob and John. First ingredient, brown sugar. So just a teaspoonful. There we are. Perfect. Only one? Yeah. You're sweet enough now, John, I think, aren't you? No, I'm Absolutely. No, <laughs> <laughs> by reputation oh. <laughs> I'm only kidding right would you believe it now guys uh, so, uh, everybody, some people like to put the coffee in next but I like to put the whiskey in next just to make sure there's enough room for it yeah yes. ok we'll go with that here we go so this is a shot oh, yes we have to measure it we have to go by the rules you know so we fill it right up to the top just like that and in it goes now Bob and John did you see our lovely ceiling here uh, you can see the light coming in there and it's absolutely fantastic it looks so well it looks so really nice you know so now Bob off with you and put in a drop 
Wonderful. Wow. There's some leprechauns. That's a drop for the leprechauns, Bob. Well done. Well done. Okay. All right. <laughs> well done. There we go. Oh, my goodness. Well done. Fantastic. Well done. You used it all right, didn't you? Now, we're going to pour the coffee in now if there's any room left in the glass. <laughs> so we'll pour the, pour the coffee up to the top of the word powers in the glass. That leaves enough room for your cream on top. So there you go, Bob. That's it. Well done. Absolutely brilliant. Now, pass it on to John. And you do exactly the same. You're always the last. But your someone has to be last. There we go. All right, put it down there. Yes, thank you very much. Now, this is the only time you stir an Irish coffee. You do not stir an Irish coffee when the cream is on top. The point is, you're going to drink the hot liquid through the cold cream. So you stir your sugar, whiskey, and coffee together now, so you don't need to stir it afterwards. I made an Irish coffee here for a gentleman. You're not stirred yet. Come on, keep stirring. Excuse me. Keep stirring. Keep stirring. I don't care. You keep stirring. Do as you're told now. I made, I made an Irish coffee for a gentleman last week, and as he was drinking it, I asked him to describe the Irish coffee. And do you know what he said to me? He thought for a moment and he said, a complex multi-layered beverage, full-bodied and smooth with a clean finish. You'll be able to say that now after this, John, okay? And so will you, Bob. Now, all done. No more stirring done. All done. All the sugar is, all the sugar is uh, mixed in now. So that's perfect. Put the spoon back in the glass, please. <laughs> Now, with the back of the hot spoon, we're going to pour the cream down the back of the hot spoon and it sits on top of your coffee just like a Guinness. So. No pressure now, Bob. Off with you and do the same. Back of the hot spoon, that's correct. And just need pour the cream down the back of the hot spoon. That is absolutely perfect. Well done, Bob. That is fantastic. We'll see now will John be able to do this as well. Don't put the spoon in now. Put the spoon into the bowl. That's it. Yeah, no, you're fine. You're grand. Okay, well done, Bob. That's fantastic. Now, John, no pressure. No. <laughs> well done. That's absolutely fantastic. Well done, John. We'll give them a bowl of box. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Now, all we are left to do now is pick up the glass and say, Slointa. So, Slointa, Bob and John. Well done. So, take a sip and see what you think. Okay? Well done. Well done. Fantastic. Now, wait a minute. Because you're after making an Irish coffee where the first Irish coffee was made, I have a medal here for each of you guys. Really? Wow. So, 
There's one for you, Bob. And there's one for you, John. There we go. And also, this is the story of Irish coffee and how it was invented here. And it's our gift to you today for being such a good sport in taking part in this Irish coffee mascot making. So well done. Well done, Bob and John. You can take a seat now and enjoy. You deserve your Irish coffees. Okay. This is the end of your tour, your guided tour. I hope you enjoyed it. There is another part of this museum, and it's in the maritime section, but it's self-guided because there is a lift and a stairs there. It's actually just around the corner there on the first floor of the maritime section. And it's Maureen O'Hara's exhibition that we have there. You can go up there and see all her memorabilia. Now, thank you so much for your attention. You're a lovely group and have a great day. Thank you very much indeed. And here we go. There we go.